Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. These stories that center our emotional lives, our sexual lives, our romantic lives, they're so charged. They're so over the top. And yet they're really saying such beautiful, important things that affect us in our day in day out lives. And it's, it's beautiful to see students engaging with that, responding to things that really gave them wonderful ideas about their own lives, their own um, relational lives, and also how they will catch things that I don't catch. For professor and writer Maria de Blasi, ordinary life is full of dangers, threats from the real and the everyday, what she calls ordinary gothic. Everyday treachery is everywhere in Jane Austen's novels, where our heroes are forced to face down drawing room dangers, even among so-called polite society. But Dr. de Blasi also has an answer to this problem. She says everyday magic and the empowerment and joy and romance found in nature and in yourself can help you slay the everyday demons. This is the Austin Connection, a special Halloween edition. We're having a conversation about Gothic romance, Northanger Abbey, Mansfield Park, feminism, bodice rippers, witchery, and everyday magic. And somehow, trust me here, Professor Maria de Blasi ties all of this together in her work and in her life. Dr. de Blasi is on the faculty at Central New Mexico Community College and teaches in the Honors College at the University of New Mexico. In her teaching and in her brohidia or witchery practice, Dr. de Blasi is all about finding joy and empowerment as a woman of color. She says magic, witchery, and reading Jane Austen can help you form a magical path forward from trauma and fragmentation based on marginalized identity and to conquer what she calls the ordinary Gothic. Here's our conversation. So let me start with, you know, I, I saw you on Twitter talking about your work <laughs> as, as a professor about a Northanger Abbey, Bodice Rippers. Um, what, what is the title of the class and what's in it? What are you teaching in it? So the title of the class is um, From Bodice Rippers to Resistance Romances or something like that. Um, and it's looking at courtship novels, bodice rippers, and uh, historical romances, and really thinking about um, how, you know, the courtship novel in the 18th century, 19th centuries, really developed this beautiful form of storytelling that centered women's lives, that centered the domestic sphere, um, and people's emotions. So we look at that and how that genre really inspired the modern romance novel, um, particularly the historical romance. And then there's a real spicy, uh, spicy couple decades uh, where we get the bodice ripper in the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s. And that's when, you know, people introduce sex and, you know, ex you know, really uh, colorfully describe sex scenes into the historical romance. So the bodice ripper is really what kind of 
most people think of when they think of romance novels. They think of the sexy clinch covers and Fabio. And now, and then we end up the class looking at uh, contemporary historical romances that are really thinking about centering people with marginalized identities um, in stories about happy endings. And I think it's incredibly uh, powerful to have those stories, you know, so uh, people of color, people from the LGBTQ plus communities, people with disabilities, they get to see themselves having happy endings and seeing it in stories that um, are set in the past because I don't think people realize that <laughs> like the past is a very uh, complex space. It tends to be whitewashed and mm -hmm. uh, heteronormative and ableist, like the way we talk about that history. Um, mm -hmm. So when we look at historical romances that center people of color, for example, it's really reclaiming that uh, space and undoing a lot of that historical erasure. So that's kind of what we look at in the class and it's a lot of fun. We look at uh, sex positivity and, you know, gender politics and all sorts of really fun things with it. That's fascinating. What do you, in these discussions, what comes out in these discussions that delights you or surprises you? What, I'm a teacher too, so I know you learn from your students. What do you learn from them and what do they, what are they surprised to hear from you in these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, it's always funny because I'm, I'm so steeped in this world of reading romances already. So sometimes I forget what it's like to be someone approaching the genre for the first time. So it's always fun to see students engaging with it and being um, pleasantly surprised that they can analyze and think critically about a really joyful genre uh, that they can have fun when they're when they're analyzing and unpacking things, and that um, a genre that's really considered pretty much fluff is um, has a lot of really interesting, complex, intense, problematic ways of framing things historically. You know, we have issues of imperialism, colonization, you know, race. All these things are playing out in these stories and it's really fun to show them how that's working so even a frothy fun book is actually pretty loaded and charged in doing a lot of different things sometimes it's really positive stuff sometimes it's not so positive um and i did i had to laugh because when we did we read the pirate and the pagan by virginia henley uh for the mm -hmm. bodice ripper and it was the first text we read that had sexually explicit content and there was a moment where students were like these stories that center our emotional lives, our sexual lives, our romantic lives, they're so charged, they're so over the top, and yet they're really saying such beautiful, important things that affect us in our day in day out lives. And it's, it's beautiful to see students engaging with that, responding to things that really gave them wonderful ideas about their own lives, their own um, relational lives, and also how they will catch things that I don't catch. So one of my students thought there was a character in Pirate and the Pigman who was queer coded. And I was like, that's amazing. That's so brilliant. I never <laughs> would have picked that up. So they, they bring their own interpretations to things, which is so powerful. Um, mm, but I think that's, that's great. the joy of the genre. And we start the class with Northanger Abbey. We watch the um, 2007 BBC film adaptation of it uh -huh. because I think it just does an absolutely wonderful job of looking at 
why readers, particularly young women, are reading these kind of um, lurid, over-the-top, you know, scandalous stories. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, yeah. Northanger Abbey. And that that is that the, I guess that's probably the Andrew Davies adaptation, which really... I think starts with or has kind of embedded in it all these fantasies, Catherine Moreland's fantasies depicted, which is a great thing to do for the screen, I think. And it makes it in some ways more gothic than the novel feels. Um, what what do you all unpack and what do you talk about with Northanger Abbey? We look at, so I love that film adaptation because I think it takes the novel and really pops out the conversation that's being had in it. Um, Northanger Abbey isn't as popular a novel um, of the Austin canon, but I think it's because a lot of people don't know about Anne Radcliffe and all those mm -hmm. sorts of stories that young Catherine Moreland is reading. Um, yes. if, if we situate it within its historical context, you know, people are reading it and they know just what kind of juicy content uh, Catherine Moreland is reading. So I really love the film adaptation because of those fantasies, you know, we really get to embody and experience all this um, excitement that's going through Catherine's mind. And I, I teach it to my students in terms of a young woman's sexual awakening and the real power of the ravishment fantasy. And so that's where it can become a little bit tricky territory because, you know, we're talking about the Me Too movement. We're talking about, uh, you know, consent is mandatory in all things. Their old school bodice rippers have, um, really problematic rape scenarios, or sometimes it's euphemistically called forced seduction. So we're really thinking about why are all these things playing out in what should be a really feminist genre? Um, and in Catherine Moreland's case, I think it's really about seeing these books as a safe space to explore your sexuality and really understanding the difference between a ravishment fantasy versus what you want to see happen in real life. Um, one of Catherine's first fantasies in the movie is being uh, abducted by highwaymen. And it's such a funny scene because it ends with her like in the highwayman's grip and she has this terrified look, but it slowly shifts to like pleasure and excitement. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, <laughs> that's the moment where you realize she's just completely lost in this fantasy of, what is this whole wide world? What is this sexual world she's being exposed to in these books? What is this new adventure she's going on? Cause she's never really been outside her hometown. And it's just the pure joy of that. Um, now, by the end of the story, when she is in a situation, she's kicked out of Northanger Abbey by General Tilney. And she does run the risk of running into some very real highwaymen <laughs> in a way that's yes. not sexy. You know, she has to go home and it, she's unsupervised, she's unprotected. You know, that's interesting a, point. Yeah, she she realizes like these are two different things. The fantasy of being desired and having desired uh, desires is very different from the real world dangers that um, I have to negotiate. It's interesting. I love that you point out the word fantasy. I find yeah. myself saying this in the posts and it's just kind of funny, but it does need to be said. That And I, I think in some ways the reason it still needs to be said is because we're talking about we're a lot 
we're largely talking about female desire. <laughs> exactly. It's like, we have all watched plenty of Tarantino films. We know that sex and violence goes together in our culture right. um, and that there's an erotic you know, aspect to violence. But especially because there are these important questions about feminism. And you mentioned this, who we find attractive is a social construct in so many ways. And so in some ways, we, we need to be open to why. So the other thing going on with romance, of course, Maria, is that it is a huge industry. It is a big bestseller. That is reason enough to treat this seriously. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a genre, as you're doing, as a genre, and as the story and the narrative, and where is this foundational in our culture? It's it's so foundational that uh, I I have really been wanting to explore this, and I feel like that's one of the fun things about Northanger Abbey, and one of the fun things about Jane Austen is that it is so, it's still so foundational to what we find romantic and to these stories that we tell. Yes, absolutely, and you know. Everyone, I think, kind of dismisses Catherine um, as this young, flighty girl who gets swept away with her imagination and, you know, the huge uh, butt of the joke in the story or the huge, you know, ongoing joke is that she's um, overreacting to things in her daily life or blowing things out of context. But as I was rereading the book and watching rewatching the movie for my class, I realized actually she has really great instincts and all the stuff that she feels uncomfortable about are actually things she should feel uncomfortable about. Like when Mr. Um, who is it? Uh, John Thorpe, he takes her in the, in the ride. <laughs> what uh, a jerk. Yeah. What a jerk. And she's like, I feel really uncomfortable with this, but everyone kind of gaslights her and makes her feel like she's overreacting it was like, no, she should feel uncomfortable with that. And I love that scene. I feel like I love it that you highlight that scene. I feel like it's easy to just uh, drive by that scene. Yeah, <laughs> it's the analogy her- that Austin's using. She's literally being forced to stay with him. He will not stop the carriage. Who's been in a car that you weren't sure was going to stop or a door that you weren't sure you were going to be able to open? Austin is really giving you that scene and she's making it funny, but she's also showing you something very important as she always is, that, you know, this doesn't feel good. And she's making you feel it. She's making you feel that frustration. And she's making you feel the danger of that moment. Yes, absolutely. And the way, you know, other women can be complicit in that, right? His sister's helping to orchestrate that situation. And, yes. you know, point. each and every time Catherine kind of brings up a question, like, I'm uncomfortable by how we're doing this. Um, Isabella and John, you know, kind of talk her out of her feelings or undercut her emotions, which, you know, I call that like a really good example of ordinary Gothic. It's something that happens all the time that is actually really bad and problematic, right? That's how women second guess themselves about their instincts. Um, But people don't perceive it as something Gothic or scary because it's just so normalized. And then on the other hand, we have Henry Tilly, which she just kind of knows he's a really good guy. She just has this feeling about him, which ends up proving really true. So it's interesting. Um, So as flighty and as flaky as she might seem, she actually has a pretty good head on her shoulders. And the books are helping her better process uh, and navigate her her new, new world that she's exploring. 
Yes, and at, at risk of sounding extremely repetitive for people who listen to all of the Austin Connection, <laughs> I really feel like that's one of my favorite themes of Austin. Yes. She's showing you what you expect first. You realize even by the end that, oh, she, like you say, she really does have something going on, even over Henry Tilney. At the end of the day, she's right. She encounters true danger, like you say. I love that at the end um, by the patriarchy. Yeah, literally. I mean, <laughs> General Tilney can't get any more patriarchal, right? He's, he's like the classic um, gothic villain, you know, the, the uh, yeah, evil patriarch mm -hmm. archetype. Yeah. Um, and it's, I love, you know, there's in both the book and the movie, you know, when Henry Tilney at the end really roasts Catherine and lays into her about her fantasies and how she's assuming that there's all this evil goings on in, in his family and it's really not, you know, that's not the case at all, blah, blah, blah. And it's true that she does kind of a violating thing by trying to sneak into, I think she's sneaking into his mother's chamber to find evidence of, <laughs> you know, some sort of disaster. So and she, we all are. As readers, we're like, oh my God, we're all here. What are we doing here? You're like cringing. Exactly. And it's it's so, you know, Austin is so great at having those really horrifically, in, <laughs> like, secondhand embarrassment scenes where you're like, yeah, that's you, did, you know, it's like Emma and Box Hill. It's like, you did a bad thing. And I feel really <laughs> uncomfortable just reading and watching this. Um, but, you know, I love at the end of Northanger Abbey that, you know, Catherine really feels rightfully apologetic and chastised by Henry Tilney when he's like, you have no right to intrude on my family's um, stories mm -hmm. like this. Uh, but then he later comes back and he's like, actually what you were feeling and thinking was right. I mean, you took it out in a weird way, but my mom was really unhappy in marriage. And, you know, so mm -hmm. I, I love that he's able to apologize and say, well, I didn't like the way you executed things, but you actually picked up pretty quickly everything that's going on with my family dynamic. And to me, that's such a powerful moment because you know, what are Gothic romances about? What are romance novels about? It's about traditionally um, young women entering the marriage market and having to negotiate all these new things, you know, the rake, the uh, evil Gothic villain, the wonderful hero and trying to figure out um, what kind of marriage alliance, what kind of marriage or love match am I going to make? Um, because in Austin's time, if you choose the wrong marriage, like you're, you're screwed. <laughs> you're, you're, um, you're kind of locked into that for women. You know, they were seen as property of um, male family members. So once they chose a marriage and usually they didn't have a whole lot of agency in that, um, they're pretty much locked in. So General Tilney's wife had more of a tragic marriage story um, mm -hmm. because she thought it was love he actually married her for her money and now she's stuck. So what Catherine Moreland is really looking at in reading all these Gothic novels is how do I avoid the worst possible situation and find the best possible situation, you know, happiness, love, stability, and a partner who sees me as an equal. So again, you know, she seems real like, a horny teenager, you know, just really getting into like, wow, all these men like me. But there's another real part of her thinking, what's my future going to be like? And how do I negotiate all these things and not get carried away and make the wrong choice?
Absolutely. Like there's so much at stake with marriage and listening to you, uh, Dr. de Blasi, I realize that it must be really lovely to be exploring these stories with you in, in the classroom and to have you as a teacher. Claudia Johnson wrote something and Dr. George Justice and I were talking about this in a just the last podcast that um, Claudia Johnson writes about a f- the fantasy of benign authority, which she's describing nightly. And you're making me realize Henry Tilney does come back and say, well, you were wrong, but essentially you were right. I wonder if that's part of the fantasy, um, which I think is kind of what Austin's showing us with her heroines a lot as well. She's having fun with these mistakes they made, but they're still more right than everyone else, which is what you don't quite realize. And so I feel like she she's kind of doing something feminist in that. You know, Dr. George Justice and I were reminding ourselves and reminding everyone else, it's Austin creating these powerful characters. She's creating this powerful patriarchy um, symbol with Pemberley and Darcy and Knightley and Donwell Abbey. She gives us the most powerful person you can imagine, Henry Tilney and Northanger Abbey. And she kind of conquers them. But then the fantasy is they come back and they say, you were right. Exactly. Well, not only do they say you were right, they say, mm. I'm sorry. And I think, you know, oh, yes. if we're thinking about romantic connections, really having to have a, really being able to have a partnership with someone who knows when to apologize and knows when to say, hey, maybe I was wrong. Uh, that's pretty powerful. And it's not something that people would list as like things that are super sexy, but it's actually very sexy (laughs) day in, day out. (laughs) You're right. I love that comment. I mean, it's, she, in some ways, Austin is combining this and it's interesting to see, and you, you are the expert. How well do bodice rippers and our romances do at what Austin does, which is she shows us the companionate marriage and she basically shows us the love. She shows us the real love. The lust is a little easier to grab, that fantasy, the eroticism. I, I mean, it's it's intuitive, um, but the, the companionate partnership um, is not so intuitive. That's something that you have to kind of learn and really observe and really think about. And you're right. After the, you know, in the adaptations, we always see the, the kissing scene. I love the, the post-game analysis Austin gives us. I can't believe I've got a sports analogy because I'm not a sports person. <laughs> I but love she it. Does, she gives us post-game analysis. There's no better word for it, really. Um, with Knightley and Emma, particularly with those two. And Austin's doing this so consciously. Like, this is not an accident. These are very intentional. Those post-game analyses, I feel like she's very conscious about. She's showing us how to have a good relationship. Absolutely. And how to communicate with people. Um, Yeah. I always tell my students, like, it's such a good example of close reading and analysis those scenes when they break down, like in a Pride and Prejudice, when Darcy and Elizabeth finally get together and they basically break down every encounter they had with each other and unpack uh-huh. and yeah. what it means. And it's like, That's this is a right. really great example of close reading and analysis and also like a healthy way of like talking about your relationships because no one's perfect in this world. What matters is like, can you communicate? Can you work through stuff? Yeah. This is the Austin Connection. We're talking with Professor Maria de Blasi about ordinary Gothic, the disturbances, toxicity, danger, and general creepiness surrounding us. 
When you think about it, Jane Austen's characters are all about conquering the ordinary Gothic. Fanny Price, Eleanor Dashwood, Catherine Moreland, they are constantly conquering the everyday treachery of people around them. Think of patriarchal Sir Thomas, Sir Walter, Henry Crawford, the Thorpe siblings. These characters and the dangers they bring can relate not just to the everyday, but also the political, the cultural, society, and the world we all share. But de Blasi also teaches romance, and she reminds us that Jane Austen has an awful lot to say about our everyday relationships. Hold on tight. Here we go. It's all here with Dr. Maria de Blasi. So when I'm not teaching, um, I'm a writer and I'm a bruja, so uh, I, I do witchy stuff and I write about um, everyday magic and everyday or ordinary gothic. And so the idea behind those things is that, you know, everyday magic, the idea is that magic and the mystic and the wondrous are around us every day. You know, sometimes we really look way far outside ourselves or outside our daily lives in order to find that kind of numinous or mystic experience. Um, you know, I kind of equate it with people feeling like they need, a, need to travel all over the world to get that and they're not thinking about how to find happiness in their daily life, right? Um, ordinary Gothic is a, a similar theme in, but it kind of tackles the darker side of that magic, which is um, the way we can normalize toxic behaviors or we can kind of push past so that this is where I get into some of my witchy stuff but like uncanny experiences we'll kind of write them off um or things that make us feel uncomfortable we'll we'll kind of pass through uh bypass those feelings um and so the ordinary gothic is those moments of uncanny the uncanny or a sense of disturbance in our daily lives that we don't necessarily register as gothic or creepy because it's so normalized. So um, a great example of that, like we said earlier, is with John Thorpe, when he just kind of talks her into that ride when she's just like really saying no. Um, you know, we, we see that, as you said, playing out in our lives so many ways when that one person does something where we're like, no, we're really uncomfortable, but we're made to feel like we're wrong for wanting to lay down a boundary, for example. Um, that, or a really good okay. example of ordinary Gothic. Yes. When we have Fanny Price and everyone says she should be marrying Henry Crawford and everyone's like, I don't get what your problem is. And she's mm -hmm. literally like, hey, he's done a bunch of bad stuff. He's gone after and dumped Mariah Bertram. Like he's behaving badly. I am not comfortable with this. And um, Mr. Bertram, his response is, well, why don't you go home to poverty for a little bit? Think it over and then let us know how you feel. That's a really great example of ordinary Gothic because he's making her feel her limited status as someone who came from poverty and really trying to force her hand into a relationship that is going to be actively unhealthy and as a result, you know, be really toxic and unhappy for her. Henry Crawford is not a good yes. man. The ordinary Gothic comes in when her background is being used 
to manipulate or co- coerce her into a situation which we know is toxic. Um, you know, Henry Crawford, I think the 90, 1999 film adaptation makes him a little more sympathetic. So that's how people mm-hmm. think of him. But in the book, you know, he talks about wanting to like tear a little hole in her heart. Mm-hmm. You know, he, the way he mm-hmm. describes it, it's like, it's not actual love for her. It's this conquest thing. It's this violence. Um, so again, a really good example of ordinary Gothic where objectively we think, oh, here's a rich, sexy man who flirts and really loves you and wants to take care of you. Why aren't you marrying him? But there's all these other social underpinnings that are really um, quite toxic. And one thing that you talk about in your work, too, that I want to ask you about and that I love is the, um, hang on, let me see if I can find it because you say it so well on your website. Oh, thank you. Um, reclaiming our our power, specifically as women of color, fellow marginalized identities, and those in need of hope and healing. When I listen to you, Maria, talk about Fanny Price and also Catherine Moreland up against the very powerful General Tilney, I wonder if some of these ordinary Gothic stories can be extrapolated to larger issues. I feel like Jane Austen was showing us with... Uh, Sir Thomas? Yes, Sir Thomas. There we go. Who's almost benevolent. He's really almost benevolent, but then he's very much not, and he's not in a way that's um, sort of that benign dictator. And I I wonder if it's a metaphor for imperialism. So all of that to say is I wonder if that ordinary Gothic can be extrapolated to something larger about reclaiming spaces as marginalized uh, individuals. Absolutely. Reclaiming power, like you say. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when I first started reading Jane Austen, I was in undergrad. So it feels like a thousand years ago. It was like 15 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was um, really trying to explore what happiness looked like. And I have a very complicated relationship to my own cultural background. So it's um, uh, indigenous, Latinx, and European. And essentially, we're products of colonization. So it means we have this very um, fraught history. Um, that really gets romanticized. <laughs> uh, but this this is this uh, history of violence in our veins. And, you know, at the time, there wasn't a lot of discussion about how that impacts communities, um, specifically with the goal of moving beyond those narratives of trauma. So I was trying to figure out, okay, well, I know I have this here, but how do I move forward? I can't just wallow. Right. Um, so the Gothic is there to say, yes, bring all that out into the light. And then once that rupture happens, we need to move forward. So I started reading Jane Austen because I really loved, I took a phenomenal class in undergrad. And first of all, it was just such a wonderful community. It was so nice to just nerd out with people who just love these stories. Mm-hmm. And um, my mom had, you know, got me into them reading, you know, watching BBC adaptations and stuff. So I was like, I really want to learn about this. And I fell in love with their stories in undergrad because I felt like they were helping me figure out what happiness looks like, um, specifically for um, people who, you know, couldn't just, who weren't, you know, crazy rich and could do whatever they wanted, <laughs> you know, when you, you still have to kind of uh, live in the society that you're navigating. Uh, and I also love that it was really centering domestic and emotional lives. So. I'm a really domestic person. I'm also an introvert. And so <laughs> the the long walks across the moors and the quiet reflections mm-hmm. in the sitting room, like that really spoke to me. Um, 
And of course, it's, it's also kind of a problem that I had to go to white narratives to find those examples of finding happy endings and working through difficult things. Um, but over the years, I've realized it's also about being expansive. Like, what stories are we allowed to enjoy? What stories are we allowed to be part of? Um, I'm really happy to see the Jane Austen fandoms becoming much more inclusive and exploratory. Um, there's people querying the Jane Austen mm. characters and doing all sorts of really wonderful stuff. Mm. And that's that's really what got me started on my road in many ways to Brujeria and thinking about reclaiming that magic of everyday life um, and reclaiming space for ourselves and finding that empowerment and recognizing that a lot of times that's going to look a lot different from the traditional narratives that are told about people of color. You know, we're told we can only read or enjoy certain things. We're told how we're supposed to feel about our relationship to our culture. And there's a lot of stereotypes in there. Yes. Um, but literature is really an outlet for us to explore and reclaim our agency. Um, and Jane Austen was one of the authors that really helped me um, discover that. That's wonderful to hear. And I also feel sad that it had to be a white world that you went to for that happily ever after. And I'm really, really excited that we're just changing that. And I feel like Jane Austen would be extremely excited that we are changing that too. And I don't feel like I'm superimposing too much. She, she might not have been perfect. She probably wasn't. Um, but I think she would have been okay with this and more than okay. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so much easier now too, because you know, as I've been writing more and been more vocal about these, I've had so many um, friends of color, friends with marginalized identities, reach out to me and be like, oh my God, I've been quietly like trying to work, trying to do this too, or to figure out a way past these kind of trauma narratives, because that's so much of what, um, what stories about people with marginalized identities are. It's like trauma narratives. Um, and it becomes like an element of torture porn after a while. It's like, why can't I be centered in a happy story? Um, and I'm. it's really marvelous to see that at the same time, I was kind of exploring things with Jane Austen, like thanks to the internet and these online communities, we're seeing this really fruitful exploration of uh, people from all different backgrounds reclaiming their agency and their right to joy and telling more inclusive stories that center that. I mean, now I I can find so many wonderful romances, for example, that center uh, BIPOC joy or um, queer love or all these things. So, you know, that was just something I didn't have access to 15 plus years ago. That's awesome. Tell me, Maria, a little bit more about your background and and you've, you've kind of mentioned how finding Jane Austen fit into it, but can you tell me a little bit more about it and how you have reconciled with, with it and with your romance reading? Yes, absolutely. So, so I have a pretty complicated relationship to my cultural identity just because, um, again, we do have that history of colonization. So in New Mexico, it's the Spaniards who came in through Mexico and, you know, conquered um, indigenous communities and as a result, we have this very interesting uh, mixed cultural heritage now. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of that heritage gets whitewashed because there's this huge history of cultural assimilation. So 
you know, you have families that will only insist that they're Spanish, but not Mexican, or they want to erase any indigenous connections. And a lot of us don't know what our full mix is because of that erasure. So part of what we're grappling with is really coming to terms with the fact that we can't know everything about our, our cultural or ancestral past, even though it is something that can still affect us on um, those energies. Um, and that's where I get into some of my witchy stuff, you know, the ancestral hauntings and the, the kind of echoes of the past in our blood. Um, and so the only option we have is to move forward and to say, I can't always go back and reclaim things. Sometimes I just don't know enough or I will never be able to figure out what my full um, ancestral background is. And sometimes it's um, not a healthy thing for me to do. Um, depending on family dynamics, etc. So what do we, where do we go from there then? Well, the answer is we move forward. We craft new narratives um, that pave the way and move beyond um, that trauma or the fraught past. So it's essentially allowing us to, and this is a huge part of my Brujeria practice, it's allowing us to move past the stories that are told about us and really carving our own path. And part of that path is joy. So when you um, have a marginalized identity, so like for me as a woman of color, it can be hard to feel like you can access that sense of pleasure or joy. Um, so particularly if you've ever been exposed to Catholicism, <laughs> or maybe it's just me, like my thing, you know, I grew up in evangelical Christianity, so okay, yeah. I can understand the, the rituals and the various aspects of that, yes. Yes, okay. So there can be also um, a very, like, shaming aspect to pleasure and joy, particularly, um, you know, sexual pleasure or things that are just for the sake of enjoyment, um, and that comes you know, into our backgrounds through Spanish Catholicism um, that really shamed um, indigenous and, uh, uh, yeah, indigenous communities and women. So part of what we're reclaiming in finding new ways of telling stories in our brujeria practices is our right to joy, is our right to sexual freedom, is our right to um, our own agency and autonomy. But actually to answer the second part of the question more thoroughly mm -hmm. with when you're grappling with all those issues, you know, that's, that's how Jane Austen and then eventually romance novels really helped me because they were just stories about joy, people figuring their stuff out in everyday life and, and finding joy. So when I really started looking into romance novels more seriously, it was just so wonderful to read stories about people being tender and having emotions and working through stuff and really feeling that the beauty of human connection and in fact in one of my classes when at the start of the pandemic when we all had to move online we were doing it at the start of our romance novel unit for a class i teach on sex and gender and pop culture and a lot of my students kept reading romance novels after that through the pandemic because they felt it had a huge impact on their mental health um, mm -hmm. to just find these moments of joy. Um, 
And so for me, I, I call this, it, it's my part of my pleasure magic practice where you just kind of create space for warm and fuzzy things. Um, and of course, not all romances are created equal. The bodice rippers, again, have a lot of um, really old school problematic content and some of the newer stuff can too. But when you find those stories that really speak to you, you know, they're, they're healing you in fundamental ways and they're nourishing um, your soul and, and letting you know that you're, you're allowed to be more than histories of oppression, essentially. Yes, that's so well said. Um... So t- tell me about, and so you started to say the Brahidia practice, and you say it so beautifully that it's about going forward and it's about carving out these stories for yourself and for the future and fi- finding joy. So tell me more about the everyday magic and everyday witchery and those rituals that sustain you and help you plow ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, so I just... Um actually just published a book on it, uh, Practically Pagan, an alternative guide to magical living. And it's really about being intentional about how you want to live. So um, my my brujeria practice is a little bit different in the sense that I I think I write for like the pagan or witchy curious. (laughs) I I teach a class on witchcraft and pop culture for my students. Um, And it's so I'm less complex spells and you know, complicated rituals and really expensive tools and ingredients. Uh, And I'm more thinking about how powerful our thoughts are, how powerful our energy and intention is. And really thinking, you know, if I want to create this narrative of happiness, you know, if I want that everyday magic, I need to look at the ordinary Gothic first. I need to find the places in my life that feel dark or oppressive and I need to untangle that and figure out what's what's causing that um once I kind of work through those things then the magic follows right our energy opens up we can get really grounded about what we want our day in day out to look like um so I I talk about making routines uh, and turning them into rituals right so we're not just on autopilot we're thinking intentionally about how we want to live our daily life. So the brujeria for me is really thinking about, I, I like to frame it in terms of actually storytelling because I, I believe in story magic. I do think these stories, you know, the, the books and the stories we're attracted to give us a lot of medicine and heal us um, through simply following the heroine's journey or the hero's journey. Um, so when I explain brujeria to people, or my, my version of practicing it, I think of it as centering yourself as the protagonist in your own life, right? If your story was a book, what, what would you want it to look like? What would you want to be there? What would the setting be? Um, and then you can slowly start building it from there. And it sounds sort of silly or corny, but it's a really beautiful way of saying, if I'm the author of my own life, how do I want to script this? How do I want to shape this? And it's amazing what happens when you just start directing your attention, um, the synchronous events that'll keep guiding you to a more joyful way of living and really helping you open up to the profound possibility of joy. That 
that was Professor Maria de Blasi talking with us here at the Austin Connection about her own teaching, her writing, her Brahidia practice, which is all about moving forward from a fragmented path, from marginalized identities, and carving a new path of empowerment and joy. Maria de Blasi teaches on Northanger Abbey, bodice rippers, feminism, literature, while also maintaining a Brahidia practice that is focused on reclaiming power and joy for people of color and indigenous identities and embracing narratives of love. Her latest book is Practical Magic, An Alternative Guide to Magical Living. You can find it on her website at mariadeblasi.com and also at the Austin Connection where you can find this podcast and many more conversations about what a badass Jane Austen is. Also, romance, relationships, power, magic. Join us at the austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. Thank you.